On the way to church this morning, I was listening to the radio, and there was an instrumental version of Jesus Loves Me on the radio station this morning. And I got thinking about that. What would you have to do if you were rewriting some of these songs for a Calvinist or as a Calvinist? Jesus loves me. This I hope. If I'm in the elect group, it doesn't, doesn't work as well. You know? Oh, how he loves the elect. Oh, how he loves the elect. He gave... Anyway, it, it's a, it messes everything up. This, this false doctrine called Calvinism or making God responsible for everything. Here we have 2 Corinthians 5, 21 on page 1233 in your Bible if you have a Schofield reference Bible and that's a good thing to have. It's not the only thing to have but it's a good thing to have. The only Schofield I've had is this which I'm flipping the pages of here and it's falling apart. I need a different one someday but this one served a long time. Second Corinthians 5.21 starts on the bottom of page 1233 and you have to turn the page to get to the rest of it. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But verse 20, if we can back up there just for a moment, just one verse further back up, says, We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And I just wanted to read through this note that I had on verse 20 before we went on to the rest of the verse 21. Our only concern, our only goal, our only end, that lost people might hear the good news, that God through Jesus has worked this reconciliation. Now you might disagree with that. You might say, well, I've got other things that are important. Well, there's only one thing for which Jesus died, and that is the salvation of sinners. We are all sinners. The salvation of sinners is made possible by his death on the cross, his resurrection to prove it was acceptable to God, and the only condition for us, the good news, God through Jesus has worked this reconciliation. Nothing stands in the way of any person being received back into eternal fellowship with God except that person's own willingness to accept this free gift. Sometimes marriage counselors do wonderful work with a couple that are at ends or at odds with each other and pushing apart and wanting to separate or divorce. And sometimes, through counseling and hard work, one of the two people will be moved to the point where they want to be reconciled. They want to be back together. And they are do anything they can, they have done everything they could, it leaves it up to the other party whether or not they will be reconciled. And that is the situation with mankind's salvation. God and man were at odds. They were separated by sin. Man did the sin, and God's holiness prevented him from saying, ho, 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 everybody gets to go like Santa Claus might. We have no participation trophy called heaven. It's not there for just anybody who wants to go on their own way. But God made a way that anybody could go. He has removed all the obstacles. He's paid for sin. He's taken down the barrier. 
And yet, it remains up to each individual. They don't get in on their parents' faith. They don't get in on their ancestry. But each individual must look to Jesus and looking have life. John 3.17 says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God did it. He that believeth in him, verse 18 says, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In verse 36 of John chapter 3, we have this. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. This is the gospel of John the Baptist, I think. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I think sometimes we get the wrong impression about what John the Baptist preached. People read Matthew and Mark and Luke first, and all they see John the Baptist saying is, Repent! You generation of vipers, like he's mad about sin. But the first we meet him in the Gospel of John, what is John the Baptist saying? He's saying, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Later on in the book of Acts in chapter 19, Paul comes upon a group of people who are disciples, but when he asks them about the Holy Spirit, they say, what Holy Spirit? And he said, who are you baptized unto? And they said, John's baptism, John the Baptist. And he says, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying you need to believe in him that should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When John the Baptist preached repentance, he was saying you need to believe on him that should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. It's not a different gospel, and John's gospel is in John 3. This is John the Baptist's testimony from, from verse uh, 27 on down. The disciples ask him a question, and he says, he must increase, I must decrease, and he ends it up with John 3:36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John the Baptist preached that same gospel. It's only people who have been reconciled to God that have to accept the reconciliation or they're not going to be back together with God. In John 5, 24, Jesus is speaking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. When you recognize Jesus is the one promised by God the Father down through the decades, down through the centuries to Israel and to mankind, and believe in him, he did send Jesus. He that believeth on him that sent me, Jesus says, has everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He's running into resistance by this time. He's running into people not wanting to accept him, although he fulfilled all the prophecies and did to the end of his life fulfill all the prophecies given to Israel for the one that would be their savior in chapter 6 and verse 40, he says, This is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Well, that's too simple. It gets simpler than that. Jesus in 647 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth in me hath everlasting life. It's not hard. 
It's not hard. At the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, John says, this is why I wrote this that I wrote. He says, there are many other signs, verse 30. Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the ones that are in this, in this book they call the Gospel of John, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. All that keeps someone from heaven is their own willingness to accept the reconciliation that God has already done. They need to believe and be entered into the ranks of the family of God. In the book of Acts, in chapter 10, verse 43, Peter has gone to Cornelius' house, and he's telling the story to Gentiles that don't know a thing about the Bible, They've heard of Jesus. He said, you, you heard. You heard a little bit. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. He went around doing good. And we're witnesses of all the things that he did. And God raised him up, verse 40, the third day, and showed him openly. And he commanded us to preach to the people. It said, it's him that's ordained of God to be the judge of the quick, the living, and the dead. To him, verse 43, give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. I think at this point Peter was interrupted because it says in verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. A bunch of them became believers suddenly and he had more message planned out. His notes went on for pages, but he didn't get to go there. There they are, and the ones that came with Peter, the Jewish people that came with him, which believed, were astonished. Because that on the Gentiles, and they spit when they say Gentiles, on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's as bad as saying on the Yankees. I mean, (laughs) the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, we have not Peter, but Paul teaching. Verse 38 verse 39, we get down here to his message. (sighs) Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren. He's talking to a mixed group. He's in a synagogue, and Jewish people are the brethren, and men are the Gentiles listening at the door. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Because he died for them. By him. By Jesus, this man, all that believe are justified, declared righteous from all things. It couldn't be justified by the law of Moses. By him. But you have to believe in him. Chapter 16, he's in Philippi, in jail. Didn't have anything better to do, so he and and his partner were singing and praying and singing praises to God, and the prisoners heard him. I bet there's more than the jailer that got saved that night, you know. And then there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's bands were loosed. That doesn't mean they had a jam session with lots of music. That just means everybody was free. But because they'd been listening to Paul, they didn't leave. Verse 27, the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he pulled out his sword and would have killed himself. Why would he do that? Because... If you're responsible for prisoners and they escape, whatever they had coming, you get. And there was enough people whose bonds were loosed that the jailer said, it would be better if I just check out right now. 
And Paul knew that was going to happen. He's down in a hole in the ground, and he realizes he knows they're loosed. He's going to kill himself, and he hollers out with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Unexpected, the jailer, to hear that. He knew the, the prison was broken. He said they could all get away, but he says, We are all here. Don't hurt yourself. So the jailer called for a light, sprang in, had to jump down into a hole in the ground to get in this prison, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, I want to stop for a second. How do you think he knew what question to ask? He didn't say, what would you like? May I make you some breakfast? He didn't say, teach us a Bible study. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think he also, like the prisoners, heard the content of the songs that Paul and Silas were singing and understood the message already, except he said, what's the bottom line? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And if your house believes, they'll be saved too. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. They kept on going, expanding the message, telling him more, making sure he understood there was nothing else to do but believe he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and he got baptized his and all his straight away. Chapter 17 in Acts and verse 30. Nothing between God and people except the will of the people to receive what God has done. In chapter 17, toward the end of the message, Paul has started and so crafted so nicely for the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens he said, you don't know what God is like. The unknown God, I'm going to tell you about him. He made the world and all things that are therein. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need a little box to live in. Now, from where he's standing in Mars Hill, you can look up to the bigger hill next to it and see on top of it this huge, I said box, huge temple of Athena, of the Parthenon. There's a life-size replica of it in Tennessee, in, in Athens, Tennessee, I think it is. But you can, it's, I say a little box because compared to God, that's what they all are. They made altars to all the gods, and he doesn't, he says, he's, he, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need a box to live in. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. We take an offering. We let you put money in the offering plate. We're glad to do that. God doesn't need that. You know that, right? God doesn't come down and pick up what we got and put it in his account. God doesn't do that. The church does, but God doesn't. God doesn't need anything. We need air conditioning, so we want you to put money in the offering. But God doesn't need anything. He gives to all life and breath and all things. And he says they should seek the Lord. He's not far from every one of us. And verse 29, for as much then as we are, mankind is the offspring of God, we ought not to think that God is like gold or silver or stone, graven, carved, chiseled out by art and man's device. All of the gods of the Greeks and the Romans were man-made and the other ancient nations. The times of this ignorance God winked at. He let it go and he let it go and he let it go. But now Jesus has come. Now is a different time than when God would let this go. Commands all men everywhere to repent. What you thought God was like is wrong. Change your mind. 
It's not about your sinfulness. It's about what God is like. Change your mind. God has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's ordained. And he's given assurance to all men in that, they, in that he has raised him from the dead. Well, they weren't ready to receive the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, and so they shut him off. But you look at verse 34. Certain men clave unto him and believed. The bottom line was the same. Believe in Jesus. He's the man. He's the one that God has ordained to be the judge of the quick and the dead. In chapter 19, in verse 4, is that passage I mentioned earlier where Paul deals with some men that had not gotten John the Baptist's message very well. They'd only read Matthew and Mark, and they hadn't read John. But Paul said in verse 4, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling them to change their mind, saying to the people they should believe on him which should come after him. There he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Christ Jesus. Believe in him. It's all they needed. In chapter 20, in verse 21, Paul summarizes his ministry that he had had to the elders of Ephesus. He stopped by, didn't go right back to the town, but he said, I'm testifying. I have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God, a change of mind about what God is like, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You think you can be saved by a God that fits in your box that needs stuff from you. That's stupid. You think you can be saved by keeping the commandments of God, you Jewish people. That's not the way God is either. You have to believe in the one he sent to fulfill the law on your behalf. Chapter 26, as we finish up this string of testimonies, mostly from Paul. In chapter 26, Paul's testifying his testimony again before King Agrippa. And in verse 28 and 29, the last time of the three times the book of Acts records Paul's testimony. I'm skipping over it here. Yeah, I skip over it. Jesus told Paul, you're going to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith which is in me. Paul got the gospel clear right there on the road to Damascus. Toward the end, King Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul says, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these chains, these bonds. That's what we're about. What Herod thought Paul wanted to do was, was, was right. What Herod Agrippa thought Paul wanted him to do. Be a Christian. Believe in Jesus. Everything I've got, you ought to have. You ought to want it. At the very last chapter of the book of Acts, because Luke got tired and it didn't, didn't carry it on, I don't know why he stopped, but he stopped in chapter 28. In verse 24, verse 23, many of the Jewish people of Rome appointed Paul a day and Came to many, came many to him into his lodging. He was under house arrest. To whom, these Jewish men, he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning until evening. What a great Bible study. Let's look at the Bible, the Old Testament. Here's Jesus. 
in Genesis 3.15. Here's Jesus in Isaiah 7.14. Here's Jesus in Isaiah 53. Here's Jesus in Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. And he's coming back in Psalm 24. (laughs) Verse 24 says, Some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. Paul wasn't a super Christian. He had the same experience with unbelievers as we might have. Sometimes when you share the gospel with someone and they get it, and you say something so, well, I see, will I see you again? They say, yes, sir, you will. I'll see you. And you say, well, if I don't see you here, I'll see you in heaven. And they say, yes, you will. And they give you a big, I mean, sometimes you know they're saved. But so many times you get to it and they say, well, thanks, bye. And it, there's another, you don't know. You just don't know. Sometimes you can tell and it's encouraging when you can tell that a person has trusted the Savior. All right, well, I've exhausted verse 20 as far as all my notes were. So we'll go back to the next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and that is verse 21. He, God, has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, he made him to be sin for us. Him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I really think this is Paul's summation of what this ministry of reconciliation was. He stated it in verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I know you have seen this. I would like to ask you, I don't want to embarrass you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but if you have never done this illustration with a wallet yourself, you should. Do it with me now, if you will. Get a wallet, get a hymn book, don't use a Bible. Put something on your hand. I don't care if you use your right hand or your left hand to represent you and me, whatever. If you do it all the time, do it the way you do it. I use my right hand to represent you and me, and I put my sin on it. Because, because my left hand has a wedding band on it, and so I, that reminds me of God more than it does of me. So the verse just says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You see that? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. My arthritis still lets me do that. <laughs> he made him who knew no sin. Where am I looking? I'm looking at the, the hand without any sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. I don't move my hand to put my sin on Jesus. Jesus came and got it when he died on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Buried, rose again, the sin is gone, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And I don't just grab my hand. I am covering up me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When I believe in him, I am covered with his righteousness. I talked to a children's Bible club in an elementary school one time, and a good news club, and I said, I want you kids, they're sitting on the floor in front of me, to imagine I've got a five-gallon bucket here full of paint, and I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to pick it up above my head, and I'm going to dump it over my head, and it all runs down. Can you see? What am I covered with? They said, paint, and they're laughing, of course. I said, when you are in Christ Jesus and God looks at you, 
he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ covering you from head to toe. You're completely covered up in the righteousness of God. And on that basis, you can be and are reconciled to God. He took away the sin. That's history. That's gone a long time ago. He paid for sin. But not everybody who sin is paid for goes to heaven. Only the ones who are in Christ Jesus who believe in him. I hope you'll practice and do that and do it often. It really is amazing how people sometimes who don't just follow the meaning of the words get it when they see the transfer of sin from you to God, the Son of God, and his righteousness put on you. A teacher from Dallas said he called that the great exchange. My sin unto Jesus, his righteousness unto me when I believe. In the notes, just getting a little further along here, he has made him to be sin for us. In the book of Matthew, in chapter 27, this is on page 1042, Jesus is on the cross, nearly done. Verse 45 says, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour, from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon by the Roman reckoning, it was dark, unnaturally dark in the middle of the day as God turned his back on his son Jesus. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I suspect that's Aramaic or Hebrew, I don't know which. But it is the beginning words of the 22nd Psalm. David wrote it, Jesus quoted it, and yet he fulfilled it when he died on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus never called God his God. He called him his father. Except on the cross as he bore the sins of many. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was made sin for us. Some people teach he went and suffered the pains of hell for us. That's not part of the Bible story. That's not right. He didn't go to hell to die and be tormented in hell. He died on the cross. In his dying, he paid for our sins. It is the death and the shedding of blood that pays for our sins. I'd like to look at Isaiah chapter 53 for a moment. This is page 760. And just jump in the middle of it here in verse 4. I'm going to use this wallet again. This is me. This is sins. This is God's son, Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In verses 10 and 11, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. God, he made him to be sin for us. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, when you believe in him, he shall see his seed. He doesn't have any children by natural generation, but he'll, prolong, he'll have children. When you believe in Jesus, you become a child in the family of God. Jesus has brothers and sisters who, who have believed in his suffering for them. He sees his seed. He has children. He'll prolong his days. He dies, but he rises again. 
and lives forever. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then verse 11, again, he, the father, shall see the travail, the suffering, the birth pains, if you will, of his soul, of the Son of God, and shall be satisfied. God is offended of sin. Sin ruined God's perfect creation. In Genesis 1.31, it says, He looked on everything that he had made, and behold, it was all very good. Everything bad that we see happened after that. And because Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. But Jesus, by the plan of God, suffered under the weight of sin, and God sees Jesus' death for sin and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. He'll cover them up with his righteousness. Verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first part, my note says, of the great exchange is that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, page 1225 says those very words, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament that the one God sends will die for our sins. We just read it in Isaiah. He died for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 7, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, page 1300 It talks about the priests under Levi. It says every priest stands daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The book of Hebrews written before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and so these priests were still doing it. Bring me a lamb, bring me a goat, bring me a cow. They can't take away sins. But this man, it's talking about Jesus Christ in verse 10, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. In the temple furniture, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness furniture, there was only a table to put the showbread on, a lampstand to light the place in the dark, and a mercy seat of God covering up the Ark of the Covenant where they kept the tables of the law. There was no chair unless you count the mercy seat of God, and nobody would sit there. The priests didn't have a place to sit. They stood because their work was never done. It was never done. It was never done. But verse 12 says, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The work is done. An old Chinese man came to speak in our chapel when I was a student down in Hollywood, Florida, in Florida Bible College. And he said these words. He said, religions say, do, do, do. Jesus says, done, done, done. And then as an unusual thing, that man, when he finished his chapel message at Florida Bible College, had us bow our heads and close our eyes and asked if anybody in the presence in the room would raise their hand to say that they had just now trusted Jesus as Savior. He gave a gospel invitation the way we do it where people know they don't have to come forward. They don't have to raise their hand. They just have to believe in Jesus. It's the only essential to believe in him. He died for our sins. In 1 Peter 3.18, page 13.14, Peter, not just the 
Paul that wrote Hebrews, not just Luke or John. Peter says the same thing. Christ also has once suffered for sins. He got his wallet out. He said, Christ has once suffered for sins. The just, he who knew no sin, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, took away the sin, put to death in the flesh, made alive, quickened by the Spirit. Peter got the gospel right. Sometimes he messed up, but he got it right. John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, he got it from Jesus. Page 1332, the very first chapter of Revelation, he said this in verse 5. He said, this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Sometimes you see a reference that says on the side of his thigh, it's got his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And sometimes they get the capitalization wrong. He's the king, capital K-I-N, he's the king of all those little K kings. He's in charge. He's the Lord of all the other rulers. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's in charge. He's on top. And then at the end of verse 5, it says, Unto him that loved us, God loved us with our sin. He loved us. Don't do that. It's not supposed to fall on the floor. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood by dying on the cross. That's the first part of the great exchange. Christ died for our sins. Then it says, who knew no sin. And we're still in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The one who knew no sin died for our sins, was made sin for us. Luke 135, page, page 1331, I think. Luke 135 says this. It says, that's not Luke 135. Hmm. Wrong button. There we are. The angel, Mary says, huh? How shall this be? Because the angel just told her, you're going to have a boy. Call his name Jesus. He'll be the son of the highest. And she says, How? I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> and the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee, that holy thing which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. The child of Mary that was born of Mary, the angel called holy. Not a sinner, but the Son of God. He knew no sin. In John chapter 8, Jesus is facing adversaries. I want to start at verse 31. The notes say verse 46. We'll get there. But he has just given the gospel to a group of mixed Jews, all Jews. He spoke these words in verse 30. It says, many believed on him. There's believers in front of him, and he wants to teach them. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What a wonderful introduction to discipleship. But there's people in the crowd that did not believe. And they jump up and get in his face and interrupt the lesson for the disciples. And they answered him, we be Abraham's seed. 
We were never in bondage to any man. How stupid is that? How many times were the Jewish people in history in bondage? Let's see. Egypt, um, Assyria, Babylon, Rome. We've never been in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, not the ones who believed. He's had to leave the discipleship message. It says, I say to you, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. The servant abides not in the house forever. The son abides forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And then he's talking to those who are opposing him. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father. You do that which you have seen with your father. They said, Abraham is our father. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. And then they have the nerve to throw this slur at him. Then said they to him, verse 41, we be not born of fornication. Who's your father? <laughs> we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus didn't hesitate a minute. If God were your father, you would love me. I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? And then he gets real plain. You are of your father, the devil. The lust of your father he will, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. You shall not surely die, Eve. Boom. And abode not in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. He is a liar and the father of it. I tell you the truth, and then it's because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. And then he said, which of you convinceth me of sin? To this gang of enemies in the public square, he says, so what have I done wrong? Name one. What's your favorite thing Jesus did with sinful? And they sat on their hands. Nobody said, oh, let me go first. Let me go. No, they, they didn't have a thing. They didn't have a thing to say against him. He knew no sin. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll go back to the book of Hebrews to close up here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. It's page 1217. The verse 25 the big contrast between him and the other priests is he ever lives to make intercession for them. He can keep on interceding for the believers because he's never going to die again. Verse 26, such an high priest became us like Jesus is. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Although he loved sinners and died for sinners and often sought out sinners when he lived here on the earth, there's none of the sin that rubbed off on him. You know, under the law of Moses, when a person came to something that was unclean and touched it, the person became unclean themselves. But when Jesus came to something that was a leper or someone that was unclean and touched them, he was not defiled. They became holy. They were cleansed. 
He's holy. We've run out of time. I didn't think we would finish verse 21 today, but there we are. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we study your word, we, we pray that the power of it will strike each one of us. This thought that we, each one of us in the room and each one listening online, we can use the gospel to break the barrier. The work has been done by Jesus. God has worked this work of reconciliation and he's committed unto us the task of serving it up to say to the lost people around us, be reconciled to God. Believe that Jesus died for you. Believe in him, and he'll cover you up with the perfect righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We pray that each one hearing these words will remember them and use them, and each one hearing these words who has never believed in Jesus might even this moment as we go from this lesson in prayer might even this moment themselves believe in Jesus and be covered up with his perfect righteousness and be forever reconciled to God. In Jesus' name.